Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, folks, I've had an awful lot of wonderful conversations, uh, 159 of them now for this podcast series, and each one is in its own way unique because of the person and the moment that the person and I collaborate in a conversation. But this one with Professor Stephen Taylor, Professor of Leadership and Creativity at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, was different in many wonderful ways as well. He's got some one he's got some fascinating insights into what he calls craft, a craftsmanship, a craft way of performing just about anything that matters a lot to a person. And including the craft of leadership, which is what we talked about a bit in this conversation. Now, there were some moments when the internet was shaky and I lost a little bit of what Steve was saying. And I have to try to edit carefully so that that doesn't bother the listening experience too much. But what did get recorded is very nicely offered in a very kind way by a, a, a person who I think just really loves ideas and you'll hear why in a few moments when I stop yakking. So here's a conversation with Professor Steve Taylor. Well, folks, oh, a little over a year ago, uh, Joe Rayland and some wonderful folks from Scotland hosted a global Zoom uh, conversation about leadership as practice. And I was in uh, one of those breakout rooms with uh, Professor Steve Taylor, who's with us now. And I've been tracking him down ever since to see if we can uh, learn more about his, uh, I think, quite unique role as a professor of leadership and creativity at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. So Steve, great for great to see you. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Why don't we start with what you're teaching, because I think that would get us closer to what this practice of yours means to our learners. Yeah, so right now, the course I'm teaching, and it's been probably the dominant teaching I've done for the last 20 years, is a course simply called Leadership. I think it actually has some longer title. Its original title was something like Leadership for Technological Managers. And I think it's real titles. That was the heart of leadership, power, reflection, and something or other. But it's, <laughs> it's our core leadership course for our MBA program. Mm-hmm. And my my basic take on the course, my basic take on leadership is that, you know, we've been studying leadership sort of as seriously as an academic field for you know, over a century now. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you, might, you might say, we've made very little progress in many ways. But as far as I can tell, there's really only two consistent empirical findings about what predicts better leadership. And of course, one of them is height. <laughs> but, oh, no. <laughs> that rules out a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, well, and of course, that is clearly a finding about followers. It's clearly about followership, not about leadership, that we project something and we look for things as followers. Mm-hmm. The real finding then about leaders is the only thing that predicts better leadership is self-knowledge, is better self-knowledge. So what I try to teach students is, and, and I bear my 
our students are our current title, the business school for engineers and scientists. Yeah. I'm teaching very technically minded people. So what I try to do is give them a series of technical and analytic tools to improve self-knowledge. And they're all tools in the uh, action science, action inquiry sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, even including like the, uh, the Keegan and Leahy change immunity map, but using things like Diana Smith did the, the um, what you call the learning pathways grid or the ladder of inference. He's all these that are all basically a simple way of kind of slowing down our own thinking. Mm-hmm. It's how we suggest how our, our own inference process is based on our own frames and theories about the world and how that leads us to act in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I have students start off with, say, let's pick a problematic interaction, something where things didn't go well. And it feels, and not only just didn't go well, but it felt like, oh, it went well, it didn't go well in the way that it often doesn't go well. Yeah, a pattern of uh (laughs) uh-ohs. That that kind of icky, there it goes again. Yeah, yeah. This problem repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And, And then we investigate it, we analyze it, and they dig into it to the put until they've identified well, they start off with a, a learnings pathways grid where they look at how they've contributed, the goal there being triggered, how have I contributed to this problem? Because, you know, the vast majority of time, the initial reading is the other person was being a jerk. Look at this. And they write down a little two column case. And you got this other person is being chest jerk here. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And then you do some analysis and you figure out how you contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily how you caused, but what your contribution was and what your own framing and understanding of the world is such that you contributed that way. Then we dive in deeper with the change immunity map to look at how do you actually, you know, what are the what are the the, the fears you have, those identity issues that are triggered here and, and get you sort of what is your own shadow, your own the icky part of you that that is that is yeah. is, is triggered here. And then how can we conduct experiments? How can we do what uh, what Shine would call practice experiments? Yeah. Practice experiments in the world to try to at behave differently in similar situations and get better results. Yeah, in, in some ways, we have about a dozen or more practice experience experiments a day. We just don't have the experimental uh, lens on, but we are we are groping, we are uh, checking on, right. perfor- on performance to see why things aren't uh, are arriving at the place we want them. Yeah, but, but I think you make them very mindful of this with that exercise. Yeah, and as I say, you know, everything we do is an experiment, if you want to think about it that way, that, yeah. you know, when I walk into the office and I say, how you doing? It's an experiment. And if the other person says, yeah, I'm fine, then it's kind of like, well, it's a little experiment to whether things are normal today or not. <laughs> the response is like, oh, my God, my cat died. And then things are not normal. And I've learned something, you know, I've, yeah. I've experimented a little with the normalcy of the world. Yeah. And I just, I'm constantly, every everything thing is a little gets reaction so yeah but to be able to consciously do it means you know a bunch of things for people one you've got to be kind of on the lookout so you've got to thought about what am i going to do differently and what am i going to pay attention to you know and that to me is where so part of my background is i have a master's in theater mm-hmm. I, I remember I, that i remember that yeah and so i've learned in, in, in acting one of the things you learn in acting is how to not pay attention to more than one thing at a time, because I'm not really sure multitasking that is possible, how to pay attention at multiple levels to the same thing at a time. So as an actor, I'll be paying attention to both what are the words I'm supposed to say in this instance, but also what my, the other actors on stage, what they say, how they say that, how that makes me feel so I can respond instinctually in the moment. 
So I have both of those things. And, and generally, there's probably another third level where I'm paying attention to some bigger things the director has said about like, oh, and by the end of this speech, you should be down left on the stage so the stage picture looks right. <laughs> you know, I physically get that for whatever reason, how, how, why I get there is up to me generally, but it's, but I need to be in that spot at that time. So I have to be paying attention to all these different levels of things going at the same time. And, and that's hard for people. So, you know, like with license, we spend a lot, we have to go through a bunch of series of experiments where we practice like paying attention to the, how we feel emotionally inside, as well as the instrumental content that's happening in the discussion. And we try to pay attention to the action, not just the content. There's so it's paying attention to the kind of a multiplicity of things about whatever we're doing at the same time. Yeah, that's a, a, a real big set of clues for me as I'm probing the nature of practice, because uh, this notion of self-awareness, which is what you're talking about now, I think, is why practices essentially fully human and and from my perspective, at least, solely owned by each individual. Now, I know that Joe and others, and, and even I, have looked at a more diffuse notion of leadership. But leadership has to be put into effect. It has to be practiced by individuals, you know, in a, in a way of, of your stage uh, situation. Several role players constitute a scene. <laughs> so here we are looking at real world and people essentially behaving in a way that constitutes a scene where it's not real clear from moment to moment who said what led to the actions of the next, unless you are the, the person who wrote the script, which I think I recall you've written some plays as well. I, I, my, my particular focus in theater is as a playwright. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm jumping you around a little bit, but I'd like to look at that. Um, ability of being a playwright that's another practice within your set of practices uh when you're beginning to set two or more people together into some kind of story uh how does that feel what are, what are you doing that's similarly to what you're teaching your learners to be in terms of your self-awareness and creating these characters characters sort of out of whole cloth the, uh, the real similarity, the thing I drop on most, well, there's a variety of things I drop on kind of from theater, from being a playwright. And for being a playwright, it's thinking about actions. Mm. That um, playwriting is a very weird thing to do <laughs> because essentially a play is, is a set of actions. But you don't get to write down what are the actions. You get to write down people, things people say when they take those actions and they have to guess what the actions are. I love and it. The actors can do it in multiple different ways. So there could be multiple different actions. But as a playwright, I'm concerned with what are the actions of the individual characters? What are the big actions of the play? Uh, you know, the arc that, you know, in a gener general form, uh, Lee Devin says, you know, a play consists of people suffer, they deliberate about what to do about it, and they decide. And that's like all plays. That's what plays are. <laughs> yeah. But how are they going to suffer? How are they going to deliberate? What are they going to do? And it's the actions. And, and in theater, the, the focus on action goes back to Stanislavski, you know, in the early, like, 1920s, trying to figure out how do you actually consciously redo how do actors do what they do in a way that's reproducible mm -hmm. we focus on actions they're actors they act it's you know, in some yeah. ways simple as that and, and this you know and it's it's something we it, it kind of came into philosophy with like austin in like 1960s with his book is what we do with words and then Searle with speech act theory but in a practical sense, this idea of focusing on actions is 
immensely useful in the theater mm-hmm. and it's immensely useful in practice as a manager. I mean, I spent some several years where I was doing technical sales support, selling for large software firms. And I'd sit there in a meeting with the, um, with the salesman and, and the, the client or the potential client. And we'd talk about it and he'd say, well, this is what's going on. I go, well, this is the actions I saw. You know, because I was used to looking at actions, looking at people interacting and seeing what and understanding them as actions. And, and that's, that's probably the biggest thing I do in the um, when, in the students is teaching them this view of like, let's look at these interactions, not as content, but let's look at it as actions. And, and I, I take from the book, Difficult Conversations, the idea that you should look at impact and intent. Yes. And what really matters, if you really want to understand interaction, just write down what the impact is on the other and then the impact they have back and forth. Write down the impacts back and forth. You'll see exactly what's going on. Right. Right. It's phenomenally right. useful. A, a different view than most people have because most of us have been trained to look at content of language. We have. And, and also in, in regard to looking at leaders and leadership, uh, we tend to focus on the words they speak and we don't even think of those as actions. We, we, strip away the the good stuff i think and and attribute leading to a a flow of some words now at the conversation level on a two-person like when you're putting the dialogue together for your your actors there you can see some of the dynamics of, of sort of building relationships in terms of exchanges of 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 what people are saying to each other uh, and that in itself is observable behavior if, is what my son actually focuses on in his research. It's fascinating. But if you if you pull it back to where you are, I think we're one of the things that I think we're both quite interested in is how does how does leading or I think Joe calls it leaderly behavior diffuse and happen. And now I think I'm hearing you saying, well, just watch people. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and here's how I think it diffuses. And this is something I think I've only figured out recently. All right. <laughs> so and I, I'll, I'll get there. I'm going to take a long way around if that's okay. No problem. <laughs> but, uh, I, I've been particularly interested in, I guess it was um, the idea of leadership as a craft. Mm-hmm. So what is the craft? I, I don't tend to talk about it in terms of practice. I tend to talk about craft. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in craft. I've always been interested in the craft of writing, the craft of acting, what any craft and what makes craft. And, um, but the question is, if it's a craft, what's the uh, medium? You know, crafts are defined by their medium. Woodworking is about working with wood. Glass blowing is a different craft because it's about working with glass. What is the medium of the craft of leadership? And I, I come up with the answer that the medium the thing you are working is connection between people. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're working connections. So, okay, so that, that's all well and good. And we have lots of tools and techniques. When most mm-hmm. of what we talk about leadership are tools and techniques for working connection. Mm-hmm. There are things we learn to say, things we learn to do, but they're tools and techniques to get at the connection with others. And we also talk a bit about the outcomes that we're trying to create through those connections, whether that's a coherent strategy, or tactics or some sort of organizational action mm-hmm. or some sort of change in the world, whatever that is. But we don't generally talk connection. And it turns out we're not very good about talking about connection. We admit that there's a crisis of connection and we don't feel, don't feel connected enough. We say all these clever things like social media makes us feel more connected at a very superficial level with what loses deep connection. 
So when we talk about connection, we have we use the term like deep or thin, maybe we might say strong or weak, but that's about as far as we get in talking about what it is. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just this thing. And it's and I'd say this is where the aesthetics comes in. It's a felt thing. Yeah, I think it's very much a felt experience. It's not an intellectual thing. You can't really see it. You can't see it. You don't think through and go, oh, we, I, yeah, I feel I'm thinking because we have the same view of whatever of string theory, we're very connected or mm-hmm. whatnot. It's, so this, it's this felt experience. And I said, so what is connection? How do you work with it? And I had the chance a couple of years ago to do a, like what I call a first person action research project in leadership. I stepped in and became the interim dean of the business for three and a half years. So in theory, I was a leader, although I I'm, will I'm freely admit that being a dean is much more about being a middle manager than it is about being a leader. But it's, you're a squack dab in the middle of hierarchy, you know, you got the provost and president. So I Steve, I apologize, there was a bit of a break there, but you, you were looking at uh, connection as a craft or connecting leadership yeah, it's leadership as a, as a craft. And then the medium is connection and how do you work with it? Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent some time again, as being, I was interim Dean for two and a half years of our business school. So I got to work on my own practice as a leader, mm-hmm. probably more as a middle manager, but certainly as a leader in some, some large, as we think about it. And as I, I, I saw almost everything I did in terms of connection and with how I was working connection or not working connection. And I eventually came upon a theory of what connection is. And I think connection, the experience of connection is the experience of a shared aesthetic. Hmm. So myself and, and someone else, when we see things, when we have the same basic aesthetic criteria, so that we see something, we both experience it as beautiful or as disgusting, or even just make meaning of it in the same way, we connect around that. Hmm. That's our experience of connection. And I think this becomes critical for leadership, this idea of a shared aesthetic. Essentially, I call it things like strategy. When you're building strategy together, you're trying, the whole point of strategy is we will all see the external environment, see this world that will respond to that sensory data in the same way. We'll understand it the same. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see it at a, at a more mundane level, perhaps we see it like in professional sports. Oh, yeah. that, you know, the, the amount of time like uh, football players spend working on like uh, quarterbacks and receivers seeing a defense. So they see it the same way and they do the same thing. That's about having the same that that's what it is. That means they develop a shared aesthetic for de- the defense. Yeah, I get it. And, and I so I think this whole idea of how do we develop shared aesthetics is, is how we that that's what connection is, is the experience of a shared connection. So how do we develop a shared aesthetic with others? How do we create a shared aesthetic? And and I'm, I'm guessing that we we know it, but we don't know we know it as a shared aesthetic. That's that's your contribution to it. I, I I'm I know as soon as you describe that that feeling, uh, I could I could find in my memory many moments similar to that with various folks. So we're moving it through our day, and we're finding moments to interact with people like you and I right now, and we're meeting making in a sense. And I, I, I can certainly remember times when I didn't feel that good about trying to do that. And that's the other side of aesthetics. That's like the stinky side of aesthetics, but I like it that because it's so accessible to anyone who's listening to this, if, if they can get your notion, which by the way, if you're doing a book on this or have you done it? 
Um, yes and no. I, I've written a bit. <laughs> I've written on connection a bit. I, I wrote a. Um, I wrote what I thought was going to be a book. As soon as I stopped being dean, I launched into a year of sabbatical. I wrote what I thought would be a book, and I ended up publishing it as um, as an editorial. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> it's long, you know. It's like an eighty-four page editorial, and it's I published it. And there's a, a journal I edit called Organizational Aesthetics. Yeah, it's an open access journal. Anybody in the world can go to organizationalaesthetics.org, and if you look in the current issue, the we do one volume a year. If you go to the twenty the 2022 issue under editorials, you'll see one called Only Connect Confessions of a Reluctant Leader by me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm going to look for that right after this call and I'll put a link to it in when I introduce the episode. And that's my my uh, rather lengthy set of confessions about my attempts to connect and my failures to do so. Mm-hmm. A lot of failures. And, and this is one of the great lessons to me about connection is I think as humans, we're just naturally set up to connect. You know, it's not about how do I necessarily do it better? It's how do I get out of my own way and stop mucking it up? <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us, we're social beings and we need to be connected to others for, you know, for the whole, you know, Maslow hierarchy of needs to bring old Maslow out for a few minutes. Uh, you know, we need each other. Now in that, notion of connecting and the craft of leading how does that now work with the ascetic perspective you've just given person to person yeah so it's like so how do i work on us having a shared aesthetic how do i work us on seeing things the same way yeah um and there's a couple different ways this happens i think one of the ways we do it is by making things together that uh, as opposed to just thinking about this was interesting work i went there was a lot i spent a lot of time with the provost talking about what we're going to do as a business school to get more butts in seats. Cause that was our, our biggest pressing issue. We had, we had just come out of um, Trump had just been elected president and international enrollments had just gone through the floor. Right. So and we had come become somewhat dependent upon international students. Sure. So it, it was a real, real um, major concern for us. And we talked about various ways and we would spend time thinking about, well, should we be doing more about, um, fintech stuff. And I always say, and then I, and I'd say, yeah, and I'd say my clever thing, which I realized was not very connecting. I'd say like, well, fintech suggests there's finance without technology there is these days. And, and it turns out that was just kind of a clever thing. I would say, look, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Because I didn't, what was, no, <laughs> it was, which is a very disconnecting thing to do. Yeah. But, and again, so it's things like my ego, my own stuff, my own things would get in the way constantly. It was, um, one of the things that was really most interesting about this was that the the provost is very much was he was new to being a provost. He was very much an idea guy. He had a, like a, a gazillion ideas every day, and I'm a pretty creative guy. I have lots of ideas all the time. That combination wasn't, and I was brand new to be a dean, so the combination wasn't great. Yeah, <laughs> way too many ideas and way mm-hmm. too many things to pursue, and we weren't necessarily on the same page because we came from pretty different places. Mm-hmm that he had been Dean of Engineering and, you know, so, so, so it, was, it was difficult. But over time, once we moved to kind of just thinking about things in abstract terms to as the more specific, got the more actually making. And this became when we started to talk about our strategic plan strategy was that was fine to talk about, but we really were making it together when we started to talk about metrics. 
What are we actually going to measure that tells us whether we're doing this or not? How would we know? Those discussions were making things together, not just thinking about it. And there's his, en- there's his engineering perspective being served to the extent that he's ready to release some of our other concerns and say, okay, now we're talking about something I know. Yeah. And, and then they realize that but you're not measuring widgets, you're measuring abstractions, but still you're making it, you're working on it together. Yeah, and getting to that level of detail, that very concrete, specific detail mm-hmm. that happens. And to me, that's, that's again, where the sort of the arts background in theater, when you're actually making theater together, together, you know, when you're doing a scene together and there's these ensemble things that happen, you can't really tell where it came from. You know, like if you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a good improv show, particularly like a long form improv show. Oh, yeah. That's kind of creates it over time. Nobody knows where stuff came from. It just kind of created at the end of it. Like, wow, that was really cool. You had that idea. I go, I didn't have that idea. You have that idea. Nobody had that idea. It just, it emerged in the ensemble, in the creation together thing. And, and, and you, there, and it's immensely connecting to do that. Yeah. Because, you know, like we've seen the world the kind of same way we've and how and, and it's not just that we have a common aesthetic and see the world the same way. It's that our aesthetics have changed in that process. Okay. You know, it, it evolves. Our aesthetic evolves and it becomes different Okay. by working together and making something. You know, and to me, this is where the craft aspect of it comes in. That like I think our aesthetic, like if we're doing woodworking together as we're working on a particular piece of wood or as we're talking both of ours, as we work in the particulars of how we do stuff, our aesthetic changes, our sensibilities change a bit. Mm. And it's that way in which you, when you see craftspeople, when you see artists, they, they when they get together, like I was struck one time, I was at, a, I was at the, I was there as some weird thing, like the playwright in residence or some strange deal. And um, my friend, Nancy Adler, who was at McGill, also a management professor, was there, she was there as a painter. She had a painting residency because she's an excellent painter. Hmm. And another guy, Alistair Creamer, who's a, a British guy who kind of works in management and is also a painter, was there. And the two of them were in her studio painting. And as soon as they came in, they immediately they did the thing that artists always do. They started talking about paint. They started talking about paintbrushes. They started talking about technique. They got just right into the detail crafty bit and like, oh, I do this. Yeah, well, we tried this. Yeah, and then they try it. And they just got into that making together kind of thing. In a way, the way that's and you go, yeah, that's what craftspeople do because it means that you start to have a common aesthetic about how you really understand things, and your your own aesthetic changes a bit about how you understand things, how you make sense of the world. The the unconscious or the tacit aspect of that is you're building something. I we can assume in your mind and heart about the other and they about you that uh, is evolving or coming coming into some kind of shape uh, so that we call it a, a new sense of you or uh, I, I get you a little more now. And, uh, yeah. and of course, that's for all of us who are working on organizational health uh, and well-being of the people want that to be happening is more and, than not. And, and that's another way in which another way in which it happens that uh, you can have sort of create that connection is when somebody gets you. Yeah. You get them. I mean, there is nothing as connecting as somebody gets you. They, they you, you feel seen in that way, you know, because they, they see you in a way that you either want to be seen or the way that you think that makes sense to you. And, and it may be I had this one experience where at a strategy retreat when I was dean and, and um, we were it was by school and we were talking and then people and my faculty were talking about how engineering doesn't really respect us. 
because there's a real clear hierarchy engineering narcissists, particularly at engineering school. And mm-hmm. and the facilitator said had said you know to the president at the time, you really need to talk to your dean of engineering and get them to work on this. And I immediately spoke up and said, well, it's brand new. Dean of engineering is a brand new person. It just just do the role. But I think we could work with him because you know he's got a, he's been here on campus for 25 years and he's got a reputation. He's one of the good guys. And then the president, as she kind of turned, as she walked past me, she just turned to me and said, so are you. Well, there you go. There's, there's three minutes or less of affirming behavior that probably secured a bit more of the uh, total uh, health of that, of that university. But that made that particular connection between the, the, she and I, yeah. the president and I. And it was like, you know, out of two and a half years of being dean, I remember those like two minutes as much as anything. There you go. And I asked her, ask her about the moment if she remembered it. She like she goes, I remember the retreat, but I remember saying that. Oh. <laughs> well, and, and that's well, but you know, she was being honest with you then. But yeah, she was, and in the moment, I think she was being honest, and she was just saying things she says to people all the time. She doesn't remember the little comments. I don't remember the little comments I necessarily say to people, particularly the people who are two notches down the organizational hierarchy from me. That, and, and that's one of the things about that. that I, I tell that story in part because it highlights how asymmetric connection can be. Yes. You know, anyone who's ever had a crush on someone who didn't return it to them knows how asymmetric <laughs> connection can be. I think there's a play about that. <laughs> but it is, it is a cross. We, and we, I, th- I think there's a natural tendency to want to think, well, I feel very connected. The other person to feel that it, it's a thing out there. The other person must feel it the same way. But that's not at all the case. You know, but we we're um, in our conversation here, we're, we're diving into the I think of them as uh, popcorn kernels in in the pan as they're heating up. If you look at any assembly of people, your faculty group or uh, you go out on the shop floor and you're looking at a, a manufacturing group. Uh, you look at them as a whole and you go, okay, there's a people sitting in a room or here's some guys at their machines in a, in a circle. So they must be doing cellular manufacturing. But if, if you get in there as a participant observer, uh, or at least an observer, if you don't know how to run a machine, you start hearing the kernels popping in the way that I hear you talking about the, the kinds of occurrences that draw people together, aesthetics, and or maybe push them apart a little bit, but the energy's there. And the outcome, go back to your metrics, you can look at it at the end of the day, how much waste is there in that, in that uh, basket there of things that didn't get done right, or, you know, there. And, and that's the thing I don't hear a lot of leaders. That sense of craft is not particularly in people who ought to be looked at as leaders, you don't always hear them talking in that manner. Well, I, I go far. I say I've never heard a leader talk about craft, about wanting to work on their craft and get better at it. Say, oh, I need to take this master class. Or if you get a bunch of leaders around, I, I've, I've now had the experience of being in the rooms with a bunch of leaders and they don't, nobody talks about their craft, about how do I get better at leading. They they may, compl- may talk about like, what am I trying to do here? What's the big picture? They talk about people that are problems <laughs> you know, they may do it yeah, all the, the, and then the, leadership. The other people need to get better. Yeah. Right. The other people, all we always do other people, you always point at them, you know, those mm. other three fingers pointing back at you, yeah. but, but it's always the other people. Yeah. And it's the, and, and some of it is, and I get this too, 
leadership is lonely. You know, you don't you don't have a lot of peers aren't as easy to come by. And it's you every t- conversation you have, if you have, if there are people who work for you, then they're um, there's a you have to be there's a certain guardedness to the conversation, which, by the way, is one of the things that gets in the way of connection. <laughs> when I, Isn't that a, a paradox? Yes. Particularly now when it's even more important that we have trust in the people who have uh, authority and, you know, have the power to get things done. And here we are where we really, really need to get some things moving, changing. And, you know, we haven't had much practice. Uh, they have not had much practice with us in terms of actually, you know, opening up their kimonos in a way and saying, okay, fellow human. <laughs> well, and it's, but it's both ways. It's, it's, it's both, you know, it's what followers project on the leaders too. Oh yeah. And that, and that difference, the amount of the, 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 what the power dynamics that happen between leaders and followers, there's to me nothing that gets in the way of connection more than power dynamics and, and power issues. And, and it's, uh, it's hard because both sides project onto the other and, you know, both, both, all parts of the relationship get influenced by it. And again, this is something else I've learned from the world of theater, that if you're working in an ensemble and you want to create good ensemble, real ensemble acting on stage, you actually spend time working on the power dynamics. We do it in theater. We do it through Keith Johnstone's status work, which is all about how status, how power dynamics get enacted on a micro level. Sure. Um, learn is how to pay attention to it, how to consciously manage it and how not to do it. And, and it's uh, that makes all the, your character and, and the difference between your, your character having doing power dynamics and you as a person doing it. And, and then the person who's playing the actor who's playing that character with the coaching that, uh, that has been given is actually experiencing the nature of power dynamics firsthand. Yeah, because it's not their power, but it is their power. It's not, you know, it's my it's my character's power. But look, it's my power trying to work with the character's power. And uh, so I would suspect that actors, well developed actors are quite smart about the things you and I are talking about, Steve. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and in part because one of the ways I understand acting is you are consciously producing a whole host of behavior that is generally unconsciously produced. Yes. You have to consciously choose how to produce it. So you become aware of this whole host of unconscious stuff that's going on. A little segue back to Peter Vale. The first uh, real full book that he wrote back and published in 1989 was called Managing as a Performing Art. Yeah, I, I have that book on my bookshelf. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And I think about it and it's, it's, it's also have a subtitle about something about constant whitewater. That's right. Uh, uh, managing change in a state of permanent whitewater. And yeah. Per- permanent whitewater, which is even more than constant. Yeah. And permanent so- whitewater, which, which actually over the years, I, I'm fully on board with it, the managing, leading our tote are very performative. Yes. Uh, I think the idea of permanent whitewater is perhaps overly optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he didn't get to, uh, to see what we've lived through since two, since 2020 when he passed away. I think what he would have, would be saying to us right now is I couldn't have imagined how much more crazy, turbulent, topsy-turvy, nutsy the world has become with what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening 
with health and what's happening in our political structures. Uh, and so the gist of it, as I recall, and sort of as we're rounding out this conversation, is that uh, you're, it, it, when you're managing, and I would say managerial leading, which is what he, which he wrote about, you are never, ever certain of what's coming next. And so the knowledge that you have in the next instant could be obsolete, rendered obsolete. And now you're in, you're back on to the learning aspect. And if I were to throw my notion of craft into this, which I'm going to think a lot about, Steve, we'll talk again, is that I see that sort of learning can be done in a craftsman-like way too, to say to myself, I want to become an, a, a superior learner. This is what we were hoping for when we were graduating our students. And there are tools and there are techniques and there are ways of checking how well you're learning uh, as an individual without someone putting a grade on it. So what do you think of that notion of learning as a craft? The learning itself. Yeah, there's, I could get better at learning. I'm not sure I, I, I'm not sure I've approached learning as a craft in my life. I'm not sure I've tried to get better at it in that way. I'm not really focused on those You've thought a lot of about a lot of things as a craft, but not necessarily your learning as a craft. Because I just threw that out there. <laughs> I, I was struck by the message that was in the media at the time. It was sing happy birthday twice through. That the whole year would get better at the craft of washing your hands if you did it for a full 20 seconds. Yeah. I did a little bit of work and I realized I didn't wash my, I wasn't very good at it. I just kind of did this very simple kind of rubbing my hands together kind of thing. And I looked at like what instruction, how you're really supposed to do it. And I realized just doing what I did for 20 seconds wasn't going to make it any better. It wasn't going to do, it wasn't going to do the big inner between the things. It wasn't getting around the thumbs. It wasn't going to get the nails. It wasn't necessarily going to get the backs of my hands. It wasn't going to do all the bits that I should be doing to actually, if I was really pursuing the washing my hands well. Folks, the, uh, the internet gods were a little bit, upset with us because we were we were actually treading on their territory which is how how people behave when they're leading and learning you know the the gods take care of that uh but uh moving ahead just a few more minutes here steve let me just write one way back to when you thought this is where i want to spend a good part of the rest of my life, because you mentioned before that you were doing technical work, technical support. You weren't teaching, you weren't writing, you weren't deaning. What what were you doing that led up to the change that you made in your practice? Wow. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I, I um, after I got my bachelor's degree in theater, I went, I went into the Air Force for four years and I didn't much like that. So I went off and went in the private industry, worked for a software firm for a while. Still wasn't very happy. Worked for, a, And then I um, went back to graduate school to get my master's. And I got my master's in theater because I thought, oh, I should be doing more. I should go back to playwriting. That's what I had my bachelor's degrees in. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I came out of that, there was, again, still no, there aren't really a lot of jobs for playwrights per se. Mm -hmm. And I think my most successful year ever, I made like a thousand dollars which wasn't really enough to live off of. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I went on, I worked for, I went to go work with a friend of mine. We worked for a small software company, small workflow company. And, and it was interesting because that was, um, 
as we were trying to kind of sell this workflow approach, this language action workflow approach to companies, mm-hmm. we kind of dove deep into a variety of, of literature, a lot of change management literature and a bunch of stuff to try to how we might make our case. Mm-hmm. Which eventually, and after doing that for a couple of years, I've decided I really didn't want to do that, but it kind of whet my appetite a bit on the change management literature. And I said, well, okay, maybe I need to go get my PhD. So I thought, of course, I will go get my PhD in performance studies because that would be the natural thing to do. Uh-huh. And, and Northwestern was willing to take me, but they didn't want to give me any money. They didn't want to fund me. They wanted me to pay for my own PhD. And at the same time, I also applied to Boston College because they had this interesting program in the business school on uh, transformational change, which had a theme of transformational change. Yeah. It's like, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And I've been interested in changing organizations. Yes. You know, and part of what I'd realized, I'd spent a lot of time in large scale IT systems. And, and it was never about the technology. The technology was always fairly straightforward. If it was really difficult, we always had plenty of uh, really smart programmers who could solve any technical problem. Mm-hmm. It was about the social systems mm-hmm. and the social problems that were existing in the organization. So whenever we're trying to implement system, all the problems were about overcoming organizational issues. So I, I applied to that program and they took me and they were willing to fund me. And I thought at that point in my life, I was in my thirties, that if I was gonna get a PhD, I, should, I shouldn't have to pay for it. Or at least life would be a lot better if I didn't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought I'd go get this PhD at, uh, at Boston College and I'd probably become a consultant. You know, at least at least then I would have a PhD to put after my name as when I went out consulting. Yeah. But by the time I was done with that process, I said, well, this academic life seems kind of interesting, kind of OK. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got an academic job and um, I, my first job was. And then this job opened up at PPI. And I, I, uh, at that point, it was like it was not too long after 9-11. And we were kind of interested in coming back to the United States because it was pretty weird to be overseas at that time for, for both of us, for my wife and I. And when we came back, so I came back to WPI and I realized at that point, this was 2002, I had never actually held a job for more than two years at a time without moving <laughs> on to something else. Uh, and then I landed at WPI and I've been there ever since. That's wonderful. You know, the I I missed where you had that first job when you left Boston College. Where where was it? At the University of Bath in, uh, oh, in, the UK. In, in England. Yeah, that was following. That was because it was to go work with uh, Peter Reason and Judy Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. That's Which was great. They're fantastic people. I learned a huge amount. Maybe that's why I saw you in that global conference that time because it was sponsored by some folks in the UK. And you might have had a little bit of. Uh, connection there. Uh, yeah. And Joe Raylan, I, I knew Joe, Joe Raylan from, he was still, he was at Boston college when I was getting my PhD there. Uh, did you do any work with Jean Bartunic? Um, I know Jean, I, we've never written together. Yeah. She's, she's, she would have come. She came to my mind, my aesthetic mind instantly when you said that you had this opportunity at Boston college, because she would be the kind of colleague who would want creative non-traditional trajectory people to come into a program yeah. like that. And well, she- that's what the, the program really was about at that point. You had Bill Torbert was the director of the program. Gene was actually department head when I arrived. Oh, Torbert, of course. He's, he's a good colleague of mine and, and he's one of our podcast episodes and he and I are fellows of the Org Behavior Teaching Society. 
Yeah. And, and he was one of, he was on my dissertation committee and he's been a, a large influence in my life. Yeah. Between him and Gene, you, you had a, a very providential time, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Well, and somehow that got me to where I am. And, and you stayed here for at least almost 20 years. And uh, yeah. I, uh, I've just loved this conversation, Steve. I'm so glad we, we connected. Uh, there are a few little points in the transcription or I'll, I'll have to smooth out a bit, but there's so much meat here. So if you were to, you know, as we always ask people, how how would you summarize <laughs> this conversation in terms of what you think is the nature of practice? Yeah, I think, I don't know if I know about the nature of practice broadly. I mean, I've always, I think of craft as a particular approach to practice. Okay. And, and I think what we've been talking about is, well, what does that mean for leadership in particular? If yeah. we think of leadership as a craft, if the practice is, if we think of it as the craft of leadership, where does that take us? And to me, it takes us a couple places. It begs the question of what is the medium? What am I trying to work there? But it also begs the question of how do I approach leadership? How do I fundamentally, as a leader, do I actually have that process where I'm actively trying on a regular basis to, to get better, to practice? I mean, I, when you say practice, I just find my first book was called Leadership Craft, Leadership Art. It came out in 2012. Yeah. One of the working titles when I wrote it was Practice, Practice, Practice. <laughs> Which you do in order to get ready for a show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's about, it's about, and it's about the different meanings of practice in that sense. But, and, I, and I think, just leave it there, that to me, the essence of practice is practicing. Practicing to get better at my practice. And it's it. not much of a practice if I don't actually practice I'll take it. Now I'm going to put a big, a uh, big gold circle around that, Steve. It, it really is a very helpful, quotable insight. I mean, believe me, you think after all these years that I've been studying uh, leadership, practice management, that I would uh, say, "Oh well, that's an old hat." But no, I think practice is practicing. <laughs> that kind of summarizes it very nicely. So thank you very much for this time. My pleasure. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to anactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to anactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.